Hey everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Sullivan, coming to you from suburban Philadelphia, where I've been teaching A&P since 2002 at Bucks County Community College. Today we don't have a guest on the podcast because the content portion of this episode is a bit longer than usual. Uh, But I would like to mention something I'm really excited about. The reason why these episodes have such long breaks in between is because of the project I've been working on for a really long time called Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite from McGraw-Hill Education. This is an anatomy and physiology learning resource that's all digital that serves as a textbook alternative, meaning you can use it instead of a textbook, or a supplement, which you can use with a textbook, for any A&P course from non-majors level to majors level. Instead of a traditional paper or ebook, all of the content for A&P in this program is delivered with animated tutor videos and bulleted study guide-like narratives that summarize the videos. It also includes question banks for quizzes, homework, and exams. It has lab simulations for A&P, like cadaver dissection simulations and physiology lab simulations. There's also an adaptive learning tool to make sure you're getting what you need from the videos. Digital Suite has over 150 tutor videos that I made all myself, from writing the script, the filming and editing, the voiceover, and animating the static images so you can see what's happening physiologically. And the good news is that I have finally submitted the videos for the final unit of A&P, and the program is now complete. So now I'll be making more videos and adding them to Digital Suite, but at the moment, it's available and it's much less expensive than a typical textbook. If you think this is something that can help students, please let your professor know about Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite from McGraw-Hill Education. And thank you again for your continued support. Now, the best news about Digital Suite being finished is I can spend more time on the podcast. And today's episode is the final brain episode, covering the brainstem, diencephalon, and cerebellum. These are very primal parts of the brain that control some of the most basic functions of our bodies, like heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, coordinating our movements, hunger, consciousness, thirst, tons of stuff. Basically the things we need to stay alive. From an evolutionary perspective, these are old structures. Many lower animals with nervous systems have a brainstem, diencephalon, and cerebellum keeping them alive and well. So without wasting any more time, let's finish up the brain. The brainstem is located just superior to the spinal cord and just inside the occipital bone's foramen magnum. Depending on who you ask, the brainstem has either three or four parts to it. If we look at it from inferior to superior, the first three parts are the medulla oblongata, then there's the pons, and then the midbrain. Now, even further superior to the midbrain is the diencephalon, which some people consider to be the fourth part of the brainstem. The medulla extends superiorly and anteriorly from the spinal cord. If we look at the anterior medulla, we're going to see two bilateral enlarged bundles of nerve fibers that are kind of 
tapered inferiorly, so they narrow as they get closer to the spinal cord. They're called the medullary pyramids, or sometimes the pyramids of the medulla. Inside those pyramids are projection tracts. Projection tracts, if you remember, they go up and down, right? So they're white matter tracts that carry nerve signals, superior and inferior, and inferior to superior, in the central nervous system. Those tracts in the medullary pyramids are called pyramidal tracts. Some of the nerve fibers from each pyramid actually cross the midline to the contralateral side of the brainstem. This region is called the decussation of the pyramids because the word decussate refers to an intersection that forms the shape of the letter X. And that's exactly what the pyramids do. Nerve signals in these motor tracts originate in the neocortex of the cerebrum, and then they propagate to the spinal cord. This is why they're also known as corticospinal tracts, meaning they start in the cortex, the end in the spinal cord. Those nerve signals are eventually transmitted to a peripheral motor neuron that innervates a voluntary skeletal muscle, stimulating it to contract. Now, lateral to each pyramid is a bulge called the olive. These are also bilateral, giving us a left and a right olive. Deep within these olives are the neurosomas and dendrites that form the inferior olivary nuclei, which are associated with sensory nerve signals coming up the spinal cord and being routed to their appropriate central nervous system destinations. Posteriorly in the medulla, we can see that the medulla also contributes to the anterior wall of the fourth ventricle, but also continues inferiorly with two bundles of neurons called fasciculi. Now remember, the fourth ventricle is a space where cerebrospinal fluid flows and is produced, and it's between the medulla oblongata and the cerebellum. Now those fasciculi, there are lateral and medial versions. The lateral version is called the cuneate fasciculus, and the medial version is called the gracile fasciculus. And there's a left and a right of each of these. They carry nerve signals from the body toward the brain, so ascending tracts. Now, if we looked at a cross-section of the medulla oblongata, we would see that centrally located is what's called the medial lemniscus. It also carries sensory nerve signals from the skin toward the brain, and we can see the medial lemniscus in all levels of the brainstem. Another structure we can see in all levels of the brainstem is the reticular formation. It's a loosely arranged network of gray matter. It's in the diencephalon, it's in the superior part of the spinal cord, and it's in the entire brainstem. In the medulla oblongata, the reticular formation has specific functions. It's the cardiovascular center, so it focuses on two aspects of cardiovascular regulation. The first one is the cardiac center, and that controls how much blood the heart pumps by controlling how many times per minute the heart contracts. We call that our heart rate. It also controls how much blood it pumps per contraction, which we call stroke volume. The second center is the vasomotor center, and that controls the diameter of small arteries called arterioles by innervating the smooth muscle in their walls. So we can constrict and dilate those small arteries so we can control blood flow to certain areas of the body. 
So by regulating the amount of blood the heart pumps and the size of those vessels it's pumping into, these two centers control the force exerted on the vessel walls by the blood that's inside them. And you probably know what that's called. That's blood pressure. Pressure is the force exerted on the walls of a vessel, and we can control that by controlling how much force is being pushed through those in terms of blood volume. The medulla also plays a role in setting the rhythm of how quickly or slowly we breathe. So that's our respiratory rate. And there are two collections of nuclei that are going to do that. One is called the ventral respiratory group, and the other is called the dorsal respiratory group. And those two groups send motor nerve signals to the muscles responsible for breathing. So together, we call these groups the medullary respiratory center. Nuclei in the medulla oblongata also serve as the integrating centers for the reflexes that control vomiting, gagging, swallowing, coughing, sneezing, and salivating. It's a lot of stuff that the medulla controls. Just superior to the medulla is the next region of the brainstem called the pons. The anterior part of the pons kind of bulges out like a belly, while the flatter posterior region contributes to the anterior wall of the fourth ventricle as well, just like the medulla does. The anterior pons consists of both tracts of axons as well as nuclei. Remember, nuclei are the cell bodies and dendrites of neurons in the central nervous system. The bulk of the posterior pons is made of the middle cerebellar peduncles that connect the pons to the cerebellum. Since the brainstem is a collaborative unit, you're going to notice that some of these structures are consistent with what we found in the medulla. So, for example, we can see the reticular formation, the medial lemniscus, fibers of the pyramidal tracts, and the superior olivary nuclei all in the pons, just like we saw them in the medulla. So the pons assist the medulla by influencing the respiratory system's transition between inspiration and expiration. That's inhaling and exhaling, respectively. The region responsible for this is called the pontine respiratory center. If we move just superior to the pons, we're going to see the midbrain, which is also known as the mesencephalon. It's divided into very distinct anatomical regions, and it's best to look at it in a cross-section. So if you're looking through a textbook or Googling images or anything like that while you listen so you can kind of see what I'm talking about, find a cross-section, because that's going to be the best way to see the anatomical divisions of the midbrain. The most posterior region of the midbrain is called the tectum. And that has four rounded projections of sensory nuclei called the corpora quadrigemina. These are pushing out posterior. They look like four little balls. Corpora is Latin for bodies, and quadrigemina is Latin for quadruplets. Each of these quadruplets is called a colliculus, which is Latin for small hill, which is what it looks like. We have two superior colliculi and two inferior colliculi. The superior colliculi are the integrating center for reflexive movements of the head and neck in response to visual stimuli, and they help us maintain our focus on a moving object. The inferior colliculi are the integrating centers for the reflexive movements of our head and neck in response to auditory stimuli. 
So if someone shouts out your name and you're in a crowd and you quickly turn in the direction of the shouter, that reflex is integrated by the inferior colliculi. If we look anterior, we're going to see two large bilateral tracts of white matter called the cerebral peduncles. Each cerebral peduncle can be divided into three parts. From anterior to posterior, they are the cerebral crus, the substantia nigra, and the tegmentum. The plural of crus is crura. Remember that. The cerebral crura consists of tracts of axons that carry motor nerve signals traveling inferiorly or descending toward the spinal cord. They contribute to the pyramidal tracts we saw in the medulla and the pons. Deep to each cerebral crus is the substantia nigra, which means black substance. The substantia nigra is comprised of nuclei of neurons that secrete dopamine. While dopamine is a hormone in the bloodstream, it's a neurotransmitter in the nervous system. A lot of people kind of know what dopamine does. They know it's associated with one's ability to experience pleasure and pain, but it's also responsible for helping the cerebral nuclei control the contractions of our skeletal muscles by inhibiting nerve signals from the neocortex that could cause unwanted movements. A deficiency of dopamine from the substantia nigra could cause the muscular tremors that you see sometimes with Parkinson's disease. The deepest part of the cerebral peduncle is the tegmentum. And there you're going to find two rounded collections of nuclei that kind of look red because they have a high density of blood vessels and iron. These nuclei are called the red nuclei, and they kind of help the cerebellum coordinate the voluntary movements of skeletal muscles. Now that medial lemniscus is also here. It continues its transmission of sensory nerve signals toward the thalamus, just like we saw in the other parts of the brainstem. The tegmentum is also where the midbrain's portion of the reticular formation is. The reticular formation works with periaqueductal gray matter that surrounds the cerebral aqueduct. It's also known as the central gray substance, but peri kind of means around. So periaqueductal means surrounding the cerebral aqueduct. Kind of makes sense. Remember when I said before that the reticular formation is a loosely arranged network of gray matter that can be seen throughout the brainstem and has both motor and sensory components. The sensory roles of the reticular formation are controlling our perception of pain from sensory receptors that detect tissue damage. Um, it can do this by transmitting nerve signals to the brain and working with the spinal cord to determine the intensity of pain that we experience. The reticular formation also sends sensory nerve signals to the cerebellum from our eyes and ears, so it has the input it needs to coordinate our motor activities. The midbrain's reticular activating system also regulates our degree of consciousness, which ranges from being totally alert to being asleep by controlling which sensory signals are allowed to propagate to the cerebrum. So think about it this way. If you're in a crowded room and you hear a lot of background conversation, but you're not really paying attention to any of it, you couldn't say what any of those people are saying, right? All of that is being drowned out because it's repetitive and it has very little significance to you. However, if someone in that room mentions your name loud enough for you to hear it, that gets your attention, 
right? So that will activate your reticular activating system and it will focus on something that is significant to you. It's the same reason why you can sleep through the ambient noises of, of crickets chirping and wind and things like that outside your house, but an alarm clock wakes you up. The reticular formation also has motor responsibilities, and those are basically rooted in the cardiovascular centers of the medulla and help control the involuntary movements of skeletal muscles to maintain our posture, balance, and muscle tone. All right, so let's move on up to the diencephalon. So the diencephalon is considered by some people to be part of the brainstem, and it's superior to the midbrain. So it's going to have uh, a few different parts, mainly the thalamus, the hypothalamus, and the epithalamus. It surrounds the third ventricle. And even though it's a pretty small part of the brain, it actually does a lot. There's a lot of responsibilities from these structures. So, so let's, we're going to take a good deep dive into the diencephalon. We're going to start with the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is rostral, meaning toward the nose, rostral to the midbrain of the brainstem, and its most superior region is the floor and inferior walls of the third ventricle. The hypothalamus is made of several collections of neurosomas called the hypothalamic nuclei. So, rostral to the cerebral peduncles of the brainstem's midbrain, the mammillary nuclei of the hypothalamus, best viewed from the inferior, form two bilateral rounded bulges called mammillary bodies. The hypothalamus is closely associated with a hormone-producing gland called the pituitary. So the pituitary gland, I'm sure you've heard of, it produces a lot of the hormones that control your reproductive cycles and they control human growth hormone and things like that. But it's not part of the brainstem or nervous system at all. Right, the pituitary gland is the endocrine system. It's an endocrine system gland. And the weird thing about it is it is anatomically suspended from the hypothalamus by a structure called the infundibulum or pituitary stalk. And the reason for this is because even though it's an endocrine gland, it is completely regulated by the hypothalamus. So almost every hormone that the pituitary gland secretes is influenced by a hypothalamic hormone that is directly targeting the pituitary gland through that infundibulum. We'll probably talk more about that when we get to the endocrine system podcast episodes. I think when we, when we do that, uh, it'll make a lot more sense in context how the hypothalamus communicates with the pituitary gland. So for now, we'll stick to the hypothalamus's nervous system responsibilities. All right, so immediately caudal to the infundibulum, so toward the occipital lobe, is a structure called the median eminence, and it's formed by the supraoptic nucleus. So the reason why it's called the supraoptic, so think supra means superior to, and optic for eyes or vision. So it's actually superior to a region where the optic nerves cross, called the optic chiasm. So the optic nerves are cranial nerve two, Right? And there's one for each eye, and they come back toward the brain, and then they cross the midline and make like an X. And we call that the optic chiasm. And the supraoptic nucleus is just superior to that. 
So even though the, the hypothalamus is a pretty small part of the brain, it has several functions and it influences almost every organ system that participates in maintaining homeostatic balance for necessary optimal health. Uh, the hypothalamus secretes hormones. Uh, most of the hormones it secretes directly target the pituitary gland and either stimulate it or inhibit it from secreting its own hormones. Uh, the close anatomical relationship between these two makes it possible for an efficient communication between the hypothalamus and the pituitary. So hypothalamic hormones don't have to go into the general blood circulation and wait for them to reach the pituitary gland. There's a portal system of arteries and veins that go right to the pituitary from the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus actually secretes two hormones of its own that it stores in the pituitary gland. Hypothalamus is also the integrating center for the autonomic nervous system. So it controls the visceral reflexes that respond to all the different changing conditions we have in and around our bodies. So when your heart rate speeds up and your respiratory rate speeds up and your blood pressure goes up because you are in fight or flight mode, that is the autonomic nervous system. And the hypothalamus regulates that. Hypothalamus also acts as a thermostat, monitoring your body's core temperature. And it engages the mechanisms that raise and lower your body's temperature when necessary. So remember, we are warm-blooded animals, meaning that we maintain our own body temperature. We don't rely on the body temperature being responsive to the environment, right? So we don't need to live somewhere that's warm enough because, uh, because we don't have that mechanism. We do. So we can live anywhere and we can maintain our own body temperature. And the hypothalamus is kind of our thermostat to know what our temperature is and then know what we need to change it. Uh, it's also associated with hunger and, and knowing when you're full. So when you've had enough food, the, the hypothalamus lets your body know so you don't feel hungry anymore. The hypothalamus also monitors the concentration of your blood plasma with what's called osmoreceptors. These are sensory receptors that are looking for the osmolarity of your blood. So when you're dehydrated, the concentrations of solutes in your blood plasma goes up. Your blood plasma gets highly concentrated. And that's because we're dehydrated. We've lost some water and we haven't replaced it. So the higher the osmolarity of blood, the more water we need to consume and conserve. So the hypothalamus responds to increases in blood osmolarity by synthesizing a hormone called antidiuretic hormone. And that decreases urine production. And also the hypothalamus makes you feel thirsty to stimulate you to drink more fluids. So the hypothalamus can kind of combat dehydration in both of those ways. So remember that the hippocampus is part of the temporal lobe and it controls our conversion of short-term experiences into long-term memories. And it has signals traveling from the hippocampus to the thalamus, which pass through the mammillary nuclei of the hypothalamus. And since the hippocampus functions to convert experiences to long-term memories, damage to those regions of the hypothalamus could affect a person's ability to form long-term memories. The hypothalamus is also part of the limbic system and therefore plays a role in emotional responses such as pleasure, anger, and aggression. 
It is also involved in a person's desire and ability to take part in sexual activity and experience orgasms. And finally, with the hypothalamus, remember that the reticular formation extends into the diencephalon and the hypothalamus is not immune to that. So it plays a role in our degree of consciousness. Its specific function is in what is known as the circadian rhythm, which is the 24-hour cycle of being asleep and being awake. Okay, so now let's focus on the thalamus. The thalamus is an oval mass of gray matter that is found bilaterally. There's a left and a right thalamus, and they each contribute to the ipsilateral wall of the third ventricle. The plural of the word thalamus is thalami. The thalami are connected to one another by a gray matter structure that crosses the midline called the intermediate mass of the thalamus. It's also known as the interthalamic adhesion, and it can be seen going right through the third ventricle. The thalamus has several groups of thalamic nuclei, and some sources say up to 60 different thalamic nuclei can be identified. And with the exception of olfaction, which is the sense of smell, all senses that we're consciously aware of send their signals to the thalamus. So they have to go through thalamic nuclei. So in thalamic nuclei, we can see the synapses between axon terminals and dendrites and neurosomas of neurons that will then carry postsynaptic nerve signals out of the thalamus to the cerebral neocortex. So the thalamus is the structure that receives a sensory nerve signal and determines where it needs to be routed so our cerebrum can perceive it appropriately. Without the thalamus, our brain would have a hard time determining where on our body sensory nerve signals came from and what kind of sensation it is. So if you burn your hand, let's say you burn your right hand uh, on your middle finger, the thalamus has to make sure that the nerve signals that came from that part of your hand to your thalamus go to the correct region of your brain that is specifically linked to that spot on your hand. So that way, when you perceive that sensation, you know exactly where it took place. And the sensory receptors are specific. So you know it was a burn because thermoreceptors and nociceptors, which are pain receptors, they were stimulated. So the thalamus also can block sensory nerve signals from getting to the neocortex. In fact, that's what happens most of the time. Most nerve signals get blocked by the thalamus, so the neocortex can avoid being distracted by sensory input that you don't even care about. So if you're listening to a song and trying to focus on memorizing the lyrics, the thalamus will block the nerve signals from other auditory stimuli from getting to your neocortex. So basically, you're focusing on one thing. You don't want to be distracted by all of that other sensory stimuli. We also have the epithalamus, and that's the most caudal section of the diencephalon. The two most significant components of the epithalamus are the pineal gland and the habenula, which is also known as the habenular nuclei. The pineal gland is right in the midline of the brain and just superior to the superior colliculi, right between the two. It's actually shaped like a pine cone, which is where the name pineal comes from. The pineal gland is larger and more active in children than it is in adults because it shrinks significantly after seven years old. It secretes a hormone you've probably heard of called melatonin. 
And melatonin is thought to play a role in establishing your night-day sleep-wake cycle called the circadian rhythm. But by the end of puberty, we only secrete about 25% of the melatonin we use as toddlers. You've actually probably seen melatonin marketed as an over-the-counter supplement to fight sleeplessness associated with insomnia and jet lag. But to be honest, I don't think there's any significant evidence to show that it's very effective in that. The habenular nuclei are associated with the limbic system, which is also known as the emotional brain. They help to link the olfactory system to other limbic system components, which results in our emotional and visceral responses to certain smells. Have you ever noticed that like, the smell of a food that once made you sick can make you feel nauseous just from smelling it? Or if you had, um, if you smell something that was like a cologne or a perfume that someone that you cared about used to wear, you can actually get an emotional response from that. That's because the olfactory systems linked to the limbic system and the habenula plays a role in that. All right, let's move on to the most caudal part of our brain, the cerebellum. Just like the cerebrum, the cerebellum is divided into two hemispheres. There's a left and a right. The cerebellar hemispheres are connected to one another by this kind of worm-looking structure called the vermis, and vermis means worm. Each cerebellar hemisphere is divided further into an anterior and posterior lobe with the primary fissure between the two. So there's an anterior lobe, a posterior lobe, and between them is a space called the primary fissure. That's in each cerebellar hemisphere. The cerebellum is on the other side of the fourth ventricle from the pons and medulla. So it's caudal to the brainstem. And it is connected to the brainstem by three sets of dense bilateral tracts of axons called the cerebellar peduncles. Nerve signals travel along these tracts between the cerebellum and the brainstem. So there's a left and a right of each of them, a superior, middle, and inferior cerebellar peduncle, and they connect the cerebellum to the midbrain, pons, and medulla in that order. Remember, midbrain is the most superior, medulla is the most inferior. Generally speaking, most of the incoming nerve signals traveling to the cerebellum come in by way of those inferior and middle peduncles, with the spinal cord using the inferiors and the brain using the middles. Most of the outgoing nerve signals from the cerebellum exit by way of the superior cerebellar peduncles. So nerve signals come into the cerebellum on the inferior middle peduncles and exit toward the brain on the superior peduncles. If we cut the cerebellum into a mid-sagittal section, we would see this really cool branching pattern of white matter surrounded by gray matter. That white matter is called the arbor vitae, which means tree of life. The ends of the arbor vitae's branches are thin folds of gray matter called folia, which is Latin for leaves. The folia are separated from one another by sulci, which is the plural of the word sulcus. And these folia and sulci form what's called the cerebellar cortex. Meanwhile, deep in the center of the cerebellum are four masses of gray matter called the deep nuclei. Even though it's relatively small, more than 50% of the brain's neurons are in the cerebellum. 50%. We have cerebellar granule cells, which are small and densely packed, and, and the much larger and rounder Purkinje cells, 
The dendrites of Purkinje cells receive sensory nerve signals and are in the cerebellar cortex. Their axons run to the cerebellum's deep nuclei and synapse with the dendrites and neurosomas there. Those neurons then carry nerve signals out of the cerebellum and to the brainstem by way of those cerebellar peduncles. While the cerebrum initiates the contractions of skeletal muscles, it is the role of the cerebellum to coordinate those contractions so they take place in a smooth and coordinated manner. As we repeatedly perform movements, our cerebellum stores the memories of those movements. Right? So those memories are used to make adjustments to the motor plan that the cerebrum gives us. And those adjustments are intended to ensure that the actual movements that you're making match the intended movements that the cerebrum designed. Imagine hitting a tennis ball exactly where you want it. The skeletal muscle contractions necessary to successfully achieve this are not only very specific and precise, but they require a lot of practice. By practicing, you're storing memories of these contractions in the cerebellum. So the next time you need to perform this, you want to hit that tennis ball again, the cerebellum will use those memories to fine-tune the nerve signals coming from the cerebral neocortex, the cerebral nuclei, and the brainstem, so the action this time matches the learned action as closely as possible. This is why practice is so important for performing precise physical tasks like those of a sport, or playing a musical instrument, or dancing, or anything that requires very precise movements. Other functions of the cerebellum include maintaining balance and posture, and receiving sensory data about your body's position, which is called proprioception. These two are linked because in order to maintain our body's position and balance, the cerebellum has to know its current position and state of balance. The cerebellum has to know its current position. The cerebellum takes these proprioceptive data and sends them to the cerebrum so it can make informed decisions on what contractions are needed to maintain our body's upright state. In a nutshell, the cerebellum not only adjusts a plan for movement, but it also monitors the actual movements and sends corrective signals to make sure they match the intended movements. Ingesting alcohol inhibits cerebellar function, which is why people have a difficult time with balance and coordination when they're intoxicated. In fact, a typical field sobriety test is similar to a neurologist's cerebellar function test. All right, we're done with the brain and ready to move on to the autonomic nervous system in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening and for striving for your be or better in A&P. I really hope that I was able to help in some way. Good luck, and I'll see you next time. Anatomy and Physiology Bit by Bit is a production of Minus 55 Media. Please take the time to rate the podcast, and don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Student Help for AP. That's Student Help, the number four, AP. There's a whole lot of tutor videos on there that I think you're going to find helpful. Special thanks to my family, Bucks County Community College, and McGraw-Hill Education, where you can find Anatomy and Physiology Digital Suite, my low-cost, tutor-video-based digital learning solution for anatomy and physiology, already being used at several colleges and universities. The music you've been hearing comes with my paid accounts with Camtasia and ProductionCrate.com assets.